Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to Cage Rage, a Nicholas Cage podcast, episode 51, nobody less. The podcast in which I, Daryl Edge, your humble guide, journey through all of Nicholas Cage's filmography, the greatest actor of our generation, and my personal journey to true Cage Nirvana to become one step closer to the golden hog of Hollywood himself and get a better understanding of the man, the myth, the legend that is Nicholas Cage. Now, absolute corker of an episode coming up this week, if I do say so myself, um, because I'm joined by, you know, and we'll get into all this as the episode goes on, uh, my very good friend, very old friend back from the school days, no less, Troy Hewitt. Um, as you can probably see from the running time, this is quite a long episode, you know, we we get into it, we just go on some tangents, we have a right, really good laugh in this one, in the film, knowing um absolute pleasure to speak to Troy and this was a great deal of fun uh and because the episode's quite long one of the longer ones you know um one of the longer ones I'll try to keep the uh the intro as short as I possibly can do here but we will get the admin out of the way as per usual you can follow me on twitter at cage underscore podcast uh, we're hot on the heels of crossing 700 followers, aiming for 800, long-term goal. Hope to hit that 1K before the year is out. You've got to set yourself some goals, haven't you? Also on Instagram, at CageRagePod. And you can find the show on all the usual streaming services. It's Spotify, Apple, Google, Podchaser, Stitcher, Deezer, Amazon, TuneIn, iHeartRadio. If you enjoy the show and you like what we do, there's also the coffee page, coffee.com forward slash Daryl Edge, K-O-F-I dot com forward slash D-A-R-R-Y-L-E-D-G-E, where you can throw us a little donate thing if you want, don't have to, don't have to, um, but also, if you like the episode, feel free to follow it on the streaming platforms, share it to people you think might like it, and especially if you're listening on Apple or Podchaser, if you can give it a rating completely free of charge to do, and it really, really helps the show grow and find uh, more passengers on the journey to True Cage Nirvana as well. We've got to spread that good word, people. Without further ado, let's get right into it. It's episode 51. It's Knowing Daryl Edge, Troy Hewitt. Enjoy. Duh. It's 2009 time, baby, and we kick it off the right way with the science fiction thriller Knowing. Here, we find Cage as John Kessler, a professor who finds himself in possession of a cryptic document that has successfully predicted the last five decades of major disasters, with three more to come. Now, he must act fast to try and avert a global catastrophe. Joining me on the journey to true Cage Nirvana this week to discuss whether this film is in the knowing, or just knowingly bad, is actor, writer, comedian, and most importantly, friend, Troy Hewitt. Troy, how are you doing? I am delightful. Thank you, Daryl. Really happy to be here. I'm glad that you picked up on that most importantly friend element at the end there. I'm not going to lie about the uh, the relationship. I've got full disclosure from yeah, the outset. That's, yeah, yeah, that's what I believe in transparency as well. 
you know, this is just cronyism, really. <laughs> Nepotism. We've just been pulled in <laughs> from the old boys network. <laughs> this is just Tories giving their pest control mates sweet contracts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we've just, we've layered it over with some Nicolas Cage. Just a little bit of uh, icing on the cake. <laughs> icing on the cage, you might say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but pulled, pulled you in, uh, raised you up from perdition, from the, the fiery gates of 2020, time of recording. We've just cracked open that fresh eggshell that is 2021. That's still mm-hmm. young yolk dripping out into the pan. Could go many different ways. Yeah. Um, so 2020 currently behind us i started a cage podcast um how how was your 2020 in uh, in retrospect oh god i mean you know for the first uh, couple of months i was still living it naively you know as i had been in the sort of preceding 27 years you know <laughs> 28 years <laughs> and then um suddenly it just uh, struck obviously everybody felt that at the same time uh, i quite enjoyed the the feeling of being locked down i guess in the sense that it made me more productive even though in my personal circumstance i've been working from home for various reasons like for a while but mm. i felt like when the rest of the nation or, or indeed the rest of the world was uh, also in it with me as well it meant that i could kind of uh, i don't know i was kind of sharing everybody else's uh, excitement at being locked down so it made me more uh, one enthusiastic about getting stuff done so yeah i mean it was uh, it's been good i've managed to write a few things and kind of develop that obviously there's been no hope to get on stage and leap around and that type of stuff that i enjoyed doing but um yeah it was all right i guess we're here and <laughs> we got our health <laughs> it's it's such like it's such a consolation prize to have your health anymore yeah yeah absolutely and i wonder how much of my health i have left actually sleeping in what is presently a molding room <laughs> it is uh <laughs> It's still still trying to breathe in for me this this fresh air of at time of recording currently tier three leads mm. um, mm. where it's I don't I don't know because obviously you you being in, being in London it's uh, tier four I assume that people by and large aren't acting like it's tier four like it's still just tier zero like this never happened like we're back in yeah. February twenty twenty again. No, I swear there's been about three stag do's passed since we started recording. <laughs> Just in a conga line down the street. Conga line, yeah. cones on yeah. heads. Someone's just chucked an egg at my window. <laughs> but I welcome it. It's a little taste of normality. No, it's been, it's, yeah, I, I guess there's still the faceless hordes marching around the high streets. Um, and then various pubs see, seemingly finding ways to circumvent the, um, the rules of, of, of closing down. Lots of people like there's like little hatches opening up and people sort of selling out the side of hatches and the wall and things like that. It's like um oh so like the twenties I can't think of them like the booze. Oh yeah, the, uh, the speakeasy. <laughs> a little like a uh, hatch door and then you go down. It's a thri- fat Sam's Grand Slam type of club. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think they said like historically we're following the trends. It was like a plague in the eighteen twenties. Then there was like the nineteen twenty something there. But now we're just following. The hundred-year trends. So I think it's. I think it's only <laughs> oh, a time before I mean, we get those fat cat suits and uh, the mafia yeah, to start yeah, coming yeah. back. Those old car Chowing horns. down like... on Cuban cigars. <laughs> uh, bring back the Tommy gun. Oh, uh, those things in Bugsy Malone that used to fire cream pies out of Tommy guns. <laughs> I don't know if they actually ever gained any commercial value, but if if they you know did that bring l- them back. That Looney Tunes heart-eyed wolf. Yeah, yeah <laughs> just firing yeah, yeah. cream pies. <laughs> 
What the one that would run into a wall or something like that? <laughs> I think instead of um, air raid sirens now for us to lock down, we're just going to get the old car horn that goes like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when yeah, you hear that at three a.m., they're going to drag you out of your bed. Everyone's they're like people will be periodically uh, hit on the head by falling pianos and things like that. You know, <laughs> just an Acme sponsored twenty twenty anvils. Yeah. <laughs> Just anvils crushing people left, right, and centre. Little Tweety Birds around their heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then those um, really bizarre pink lumpy growths that emerge <laughs> <laughs> after receiving a bump on the head. <laughs> NHS hospital beds ridden with uh, with cartoon capers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Catch the Pigeon happening like in the back of the governmental address. <laughs> Instead of saying time of death now, NHS doctors just to say like, a, well, that's all, folks. Curtain bed comes around. Yeah, Curtain yeah, comes yeah. to the bed. Then you finished. Just catapult into the sun. Absolutely. The only way to get well, rid of the... Be, um, it'd be a good way to, um, as a good tribute, I suppose, for the last year. <laughs> to just catapult us into the horizon living or Just dead into some crazy cartoon hysteria <laughs> i think it's it's only a matter of time before we get the um sort of hunger games like walls just built around the uk and then we get that sort of um action movie taglines like we weren't keeping them out they were keeping us in <laughs> <laughs> escape from new york we yeah, some, uh, like German snake Pliskin trying to deliver us a, a vaccine. Like, <laughs> yeah, but then it turns out the UK is actually built on top of a really precarious volcano that's about to erupt. <laughs> we all... a, a UK-shaped crevice, an Indian burial ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then eventually it all spews out over the top and the UK is unleashed on the world once again. <laughs> Happy New Year. <laughs> Just be... Uh, fades to black with the hashtag the empire is back baby <laughs> yeah that'd be um, probably a good way of reinstating it actually in dramatic cinematic fashion the British known for their flair you know. <laughs> tailcoats and hornblower back again yeah <laughs> this is just a big way to bring back uh, old jo- Johnny Horn Johnny Horn's hornblower himself <laughs> which I think is the I think is the way to go um, I suppose, speaking of uh, bringing actors back to the fore, we're here for one reason, one mm-hmm. reason only, and that is, in my humble opinion, and as I've been saying for weeks now, the greatest actor of our generation in Nicolas mm-hmm. Cage. Um, so it was like a, a bit of the old preamble with the guests, just to sort of talk. Uh, Nicolas Cage, for you, um, you know, where does he stand on your, your acting hierarchy? Rate him? Hate him? What are your thoughts on the cage, man? Like I would, I do, would describe myself as cage curious. You know, <laughs> I've not got the same sort of like fervid adherence to his career that that you have, maybe. You know, but then you're you're sort of you you boldly stepped into a space now where this is almost like your PhD thesis, isn't it? <laughs> on <laughs> cage the life and times. I wish I'd um, applied myself so successfully in a noblian <laughs> university. Now it's never too late, though, mate. I reckon you could start off with a sort of cage masters. And then work towards, <laughs> or you don't even need to be sponsored like with an official doctorate. Just make your own. Get like <laughs> at a, the end a, of this, a, a BC Bachelor of Cage. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, submit just submit the podcast at the end. Um, <laughs> but you know, nevertheless, I, I, I've always been, 
aware of of the man obviously there's a huge international following for him um yeah my first exposure our mutual childhood friend drew shout out if you're listening um oh, yeah. was i was at his house as a boy and watched wind talkers um yes a classic yeah. cage flick um, uh, i don't John know if you've got, you haven't got to that yet have you we have uh, we passed by, it by the time this one goes out i will have uh talked about it ah nice yeah yeah well yeah so i, I that really stuck with me and also cage in conair i believed I, I remember thinking that he looked like marilyn manson like without makeup <laughs> and they do share some sort of facial characteristics actually manson and cage but yeah so i'd say yeah i'm willing to try more you know i'm will, I'm, i am on that uh, come on the edge I, i'm kind of I, it's not i'm not green in the game i've, I've you know come face to face danced in the pale moonlight with a cage <laughs> but uh, there's <laughs> There is a lot more to be done. So, you know, coming into knowing and being invited on the podcast, it was an exciting experience. Well, it's uh, always a pleasure. I mean, speaking of, um, you know, the, the, the name drop of Marilyn Manson there, it did, it, it triggered into my, um, I suppose, like my cage Rolodex of information and uh, yeah. useless knowledge that's applicable nowhere else. But in this case, you are the cage sage, actually, aren't you? That's what I <laughs> Well, as uh, uh, Stuart Laws described in the episode, we talked about matchstick men. Um, he, was, he asked if I had a, I suppose, like a fan base name. And I, I suppose at one, I was like, oh, toy me like Rages. But I suppose, you know, it's uh, very easy. Could, the connotations of like nice throbbing hog, which I always think about Nicolas Cage when I think mm. about hogs. Uh, he offered Cage and Spice Boys. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> you've got yeah. <laughs> season it, sprinkle it, get, get all nice and spicy. Um, but there was a story. Yeah, they don't, I don't know. They sound quite dangerous. Those guys. <laughs> Spice yeah. Boys and Cajun Spice Girls. Got to put the Cajun out there so I don't get trademarked and infringed yeah, yeah. by scary spice bursting into the window. <laughs> yeah. Zigger zigging army right into a right into yeah, exactly. Being um, stamped down by a pair of Union Jack platform heels. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to be my lover, yeah, yeah, yeah. gotta get with my friend. <laughs> 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 scary spice just became like scary Hogan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> Putting that hand to that ear, waiting for the girl. Brother. Ripping that Union Jack dress just right off himself, yeah. right down the middle. <laughs> With some sort of like hideous mutant Andre the Giant version of Baby Spice. <laughs> <laughs> Andre the Spice. Nine foot tall, kind of troll like. <laughs> Carrying a big club wrapped in a feather boa. <laughs> Oh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Perfect is one of the spices as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, um, I mean, uh, yes, I, I suppose um, the Cajun Spice Boys, that's yeah, quite nice. I'm trying to think of another one now. It's, uh, it's, we could it's, probably yeah. come back to that. We, we'll, we'll probably like just think of one. As I guess you're um, in this unique position where like, you, you, you're like one of a hallowed few who holds this knowledge. And like, if the Earth was to get struck by an asteroid tomorrow, and all that remained was this podcast, like future <laughs> generations would be fooled into believing that you were some prophet-like figure who was uh, conveying the word of, of Cage the God. Well, you know, when um, when Cage truly ascends, and I have hopefully by that work point, here is done, discussed all of his films, achieved true Cage Nirvana as his sort of the purpose of this podcast, and I'll be at his right hand side. Uh, nice little sort of like robe right across myself, oh, glowing, yeah, kind of rippling. John the Baptist character, <laughs> little, <laughs> little golden beret just for effects, like hands pursed together in prayer oh, formation. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
It'd be absolutely glorious. I always wonder though, it's like, because um, I think at this point in my life, nearing 30, like I don't know if I'm, uh, you know, going to get married, going to have kids. I don't, never really known about all that stuff. But if I did, then th- this is on, <laughs> this this podcast is on the internet forever. This will be my legacy to future generations. Uh, I thought you were going to say you wanted Cage to officiate the wedding. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to. That'd be really nice. And I think if you could get him at the right time, and probably knowing Cage for the right price, I think he would. You reckon he could do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's I mean, one... but that... It would be strange, though. What would he do? Would he marry you into a cult of Cage, or would it be a conventional Christian wedding? Um, What's the difference? Yeah. Oh, and now you see what all the previous episodes were about. We've led to this point. It's just a cheap Christian conversion tactic. It's all just been slowly building up to me, just building this cult, dropping seeds here, there, and everywhere. Yeah. But yeah, as, as I was saying, he had a story where cause I think him, him and Marilyn Manson are, are sort of fairly uh, fairly tight, fairly chummy. And he was talking about the um, last time he went gambling because uh, there was like an interview, sort of Manson and Cage kind of interviewed each other for a, a magazine or something. And Manson asked him about his gambling habits. And he said um, he hasn't gambled since, I think maybe like the late 90s or something like that. Um, and he said um, he felt like his game was um, roulette. He said he went in with $200. He didn't miss. Um, and he said so much that even the lady spinning the wheel said, nothing sweeter than a repeater. Just kept hitting the numbers that he wanted. And then he said, and he quotes, uh, in 20 minutes, I turned $200 into 20000 So I went and found an orphanage in the Bahamas, met all the kids and the headmistress and said, this is for you. Put twenty grand in the hand, walked away, never gambled again. Oh said, my god! He said, "If he gambled again, it would have ruined the power of that yeah. moment." <laughs> I think he's he's frightened of what he's capable of. To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a power there's a power to him that um, that you just can't quantify, um, and it takes it's him like all a fierce aura, isn't it? It comes from somewhere else, from deep the, within. There's something in the fibers of his of his being, but. Um, like I, say, I think his, his interests take him all over the world and this is something I've brought up on the, the podcast a number of times uh, being the fact that now we can put um, a name to a story you being the person who told me of the, the Christmas lights in Bath back mm-hmm. in 2009 when we were oh, just yes. going on a, a stroll through one of our parks in our, our, our hometown I didn't believe you I called you out mm-hmm. I pointed in your face basically spat at you yeah, but it turns out it was all true. And oh, well, mate, this was before you had your epiphany moment, I guess. This this <laughs> was in the you dark. were awakened. <laughs> this I was I was a sleep raged at that time, waiting for yeah, the word yeah, yeah. to come from high. You were, you were a bitter husk of a man, weren't you? Until you properly came onto this path. <laughs> now I'm still a husk, but just not as bitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, that's it. Were you were sweet you... and ripened? <laughs> <laughs> Were you there at the uh, at the turn on? Did you see him with your own eyes, or were you just sort of? I didn't. Sit- no, I didn't. I might have actually bullshitted you at the time and said I did. If I apologise, <laughs> sure you know. you <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I apologise sure if did. that were the case. However, however, he um, d- was known to have a property on the Royal Crescent, uh, which was like a very affluent street in Bath, and uh, everyone always talked about that, you know. And allegedly, you could see his his particular house. Someone knew which one it was. He was never there, obviously. It was just a property he kept. Yeah. 
So you just, you just so you even past. said that with a streak of cynicism. In it. <laughs> <laughs> the bitterness of this husk <laughs> is still there. <laughs> yeah, can't teach this old dog new tricks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's still there, just grumbling, just eating me away. Um, just in a, no, but that's a, it's a good story, though, isn't it? Cage and bath. I think what took him there because I I read up in this a few weeks ago that he um, had an interest in the Holy Grail. Um, and he he followed it to Glastonbury. He he might even have a property in Glastonbury as well, um, because he's like a notorious Anglophile, very much uh, in mm. touch with like the British history and um, I think all the the Saint George and those kind of like legends and whatever. He's very much a fan of that. So he came here for the Holy Grail. He he supped out of a river, which is supposed to taste like blood, but I think it's just iron in the water. He'd or something. know as well, wouldn't he? <laughs> exactly what that tastes. <laughs> if there's one man, if you went to like a blind taste test and just put some yeah, yeah. wines, and one of them was just a vial of your very positive, that's it. Oh yeah, he could definitely detect blood types. <laughs> definitely, and, and it also if if, he, if he's, he's kind of like um, you wouldn't need blood test for anything because he could detect if there's any foreign bacteria in the blood, or you know, <laughs> just like a wine glass, just swill it, sniff it, yeah. spin it around. <laughs> Gargle it in his mouth. Just him and Christopher Lee, and like it. <laughs> he would spit it back into like your open, hanging mouth. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Hey, JB. <laughs> <laughs> You're very, very sick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's 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 this it's this fascination that I sort of have with him because even now when I sort of say to people that um. It seems weird to say to people, and I don't know if you find this, um, it, that watching a Nicolas Cage film and enjoying it unironically, that seems to throw people off, mm. um, that you yeah. can just enjoy a film on its own merits. I mean, um, like at, at the time of this podcast, in the last film I watched of Nicolas Cage's, barring this one in knowing, was Matchstick Men, which I... Uh, uh, thoroughly enjoyed. It's one of the films where I, you know, I forgot Cage was Cage, and I was fully lost and immersed in the mm-hmm. world of it. Um, and I've thoroughly enjoyed, you know, the more classic full Cage films like Vampire's Kiss, and of course your face-offs and your Conairs. Um, and it kind of feels like when you ask someone what's their favourite Cage film, you're expecting Conair. Mm-hmm. You might, someone might throw adaptation at you if they want to get a bit more, uh, a bit more artsy. Yeah, they're trying to impress you. Yeah. As the head of the cage rage cult, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you, you know, I don't think you're gonna th- see anyone throwing a throwing a wind talkers curveball mm. in there, but um, it, it just feels odd that people. I always say this: they have such a such a divisive black and white reaction to him, in that they either you, you like him as an actor or you think he's this complete cheese ball. You totally you hate him. So it's, um, I'd say, like watching, knowing there were, I, I entered it wanting to be able to find material for us to joke around about like you know and obviously there are elements of that in my personal analysis of the film (laughs) but (laughs) it didn't take long for me to as is often the case on this podcast uh become engrossed in in the film for the film's sake (laughs) and to enjoy the kind of (laughs) even though there were absolutely moments of complete ridiculousness which i'm sure we'll come on to uh, generally speaking, I enjoyed watching it. And I suppose the wider subject matter is something I'm interested in anyway. So, yeah, I mean, the film kind of had me. Yeah, this was, I'll be honest, this one I went into expecting it to just be a complete uh, a complete write-off. I thought it was just going to be this 
big disaster flick, just a big sort of nonsense. In 2009, where I think um, a fair bit of cinema was still sort of looking at the end of the world. 2012 yeah. was fast approaching us. Um, what was the other one? Day After Tomorrow. Day that after was like t- an originator of that kind of apocalypse flick. I mean, someone yeah. might correct me on that. Seemed like it was. <laughs> That was the one that seemed to like kick it all into high gear. We had like Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal, was it just running through New York away from that sort of tsunami tidal wave? Yeah, and um, no, I remember he had to at some point. Did he did he board a moored uh, sh- shipping hauler or something like that that was frozen and there was loads of wolves on there that had been like <laughs> left, <laughs> and there were all these grizzled kind of like frosty wolves that were really pissed off. <laughs> living on a boat in the middle of manhattan <laughs> <laughs> those goddamn those new york walls yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> hey, what am i gonna do to get a ham around here <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's like you you out of town is coming here <laughs> feeling the resources their paws are on the bottom of their jaw just flicking it forward going hey yeah, yeah. <laughs> italian american walls <laughs> Punctuating all of their monologues with a howl at the moon. <laughs> it's like, excuse me. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there are a lot worse disaster films. Uh, there was one, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think it, with the chronology of this podcast. I think this is going to come later, but I've watched, um, this is also on Netflix. There's a film called Left Behind, starring Nicolas Cage. Also, um, a disaster film, but it quickly becomes clear that that is absolutely just drowning in christian mythology it's a, like a purposeful purposely made uh christian end of the world film which is it's so bad that it's hilarious one percent on rotten tomatoes that holds got, one yeah of, yeah that's got a lot of weight the thing then, is though um this had a lot of like christian iconography and well as well especially that end scene yeah the, the final yeah yeah i mean it's aching in towards the end um it, it seemed like it seemed to be a film of two halves one the first half i definitely enjoyed more when they were um talking about all like the mysteries and the like the mythology of the numbers and mm-hmm. all these all, all these events happening i found that really interesting yeah and then it turns out that the uh they maybe aliens maybe angels they're just like these perfectly formed mate they, um, they look like a, like a bad tribute act to spandau ballet don't they <laughs> in my notes i put down they look like a eurythmics cover band yeah it's fake they definitely got they've got a new romantics look about them <laughs> like they've come from the 80s to steal your children <laughs> short bleach blonde buzz cuts long leather trench coats, long leather trench coats. <laughs> and a kind of androgynous face that looks very well maintained as well yeah very like very thin cheekboned Dolph Lundgren like faces spike from Buffy type of vibe (laughs) (laughs) just creeping around whispering giving black pebbles to kids yeah uh, that never really explained what that's what I was thinking what is that meant to be merchandise from the home planet (laughs) (laughs) I thought check it out little like shit gift shops you get like on the seafront somewhere in Skegness (laughs) like Like... pebble (laughs) Skegness is like a Skegness branded pebble, lump of coal, Christmas stocking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, when um, I know we're sort of skipping ahead a bit here, but when um, it becomes apparent that Caleb, uh, Nicholas Cage's uh, character's child, starts hearing the whispers, um, mm-hmm. when that car pulled up and you just hear like 
and then they roll the window <laughs> they roll the window down and give him that pebble i thought he was giving him like a bluetooth headset or something because of his hearing aid yeah yeah, yeah i thought he's giving like an audio de- <laughs> an audio <laughs> device to t- tap in to the whispers but it just wasn't a thing oh it's going to say he's kind of like a, a sort of santa claus sort of figure coming and giving a gift yeah. <laughs> but, but no, but he was given a gift, but it's of absolutely no practical value at all. It's just a, <laughs> it's a black pebble. I mean, I'm not sure if that was supposed to be um, like this is basically your admit one token to uh, the pointy rock ship at the uh-huh. end, um, or it was some kind of maybe some joint tracking device thing because they're just right at the end when Cage is at like the gas station, like calling up saying, like, oh, on the payphone because yeah. they haven't gone down for some reason. Only, only you know, wireless signals. Mm-hmm. Um, Give it analog, <laughs> baby. Uh, yeah, there's yeah, just yeah. a black pebble on top of, top of that payphone, and then he's uh, then he can't cash that in. So it's so they no. Got... Well, that's it. They, you know, it's it's kind of like a surplus economy in a way, isn't it? Because they, they're just dishing that. <laughs> obviously, the, the value is supposed to be worthless. There's about six pebbles like inside that motorhome. <laughs> they're trying to get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> Traveling around the universe, they've got so many, just throwing them out like, into deep space. It's just, I think it's just like when we made like the transition from like shillings to pound coins. Oh, like, yeah, oh, I've yeah. got, I've got all these shillings now. With these. <laughs> <laughs> these alien shillings. I think or just... like your your aforementioned collection of wrestling magazines from childhood. What you... <laughs> to a point where you're just <laughs> forcing them upon random like six year olds in the back of the car when their parents are away. <laughs> so. Like this one's got like a two-page spread interview with the hurricane. Why don't why yeah, don't yeah, you yeah. want? It? Yeah, cooking steaks with Al Snow. <laughs> <laughs> what does everybody want? Steaks. Yeah. Just tenderizing the steak with the head. <laughs> this one's for the wrestling listeners. <laughs> Medium rare. Uh, I seem to vaguely remember when this came out in 2009 that it kind of being a big deal when mm. it came out. Um, I sort of I remember the poster for it, which is like Nicolas Cage's face sort of floating ominously next to the Earth with all these numbers and symbols yep. around it, um, with a kind of a crest crescent um, of of fire or like that orange kind of lava. Or was that that might yeah, not be it? There was like There's this. A- yeah, it was like it was like it was cupping it almost, like this um, crescent sort of cupping it. Um, I'm trying to see what the tagline of the film was. Uh, what happens when the numbers run out? I think was the tagline. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just just add yeah. one, mate. You can always add one. <laughs> what happens when the numbers run out? It was just making me think of like that uh, classic sort of Call of Duty no- meme, like the numbers, Mason. What do the numbers mean? <laughs> the numbers, Mason. Um, but like I said, I found I found everything in the first half of the film when they were sort of discovering uh, the numbers quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Although um, I felt because it, it, Cage's character—I mean, I don't know if his his professor role actually has much to do with numbers. Because I think he's an he's an astrophysicist, he's astro, yeah, astrophysics lecturer, astrophysics MIT. lecturer, um, who's who's very much in the mindset of there's no meaning in life, there's no purpose ever since his wife died, turns out in one of the uh, disasters that was foretold and that had happened. I, I tell you what as well, I would be really disappointed with the quality of Cage's lectures. 
like at that point because basically if you can imagine this is one of the finest educational institutions in the whole world and these students are of the highest caliber first of all that class is way too attractive for the physics class at MIT <laughs> but uh, secondly Cage one of presumably one of the world's most intelligent men like you know if he's this astrophysics lecturer at MIT and he teaches uh, like cosmology with uh, like a couple of balls essentially colored balls in the way that you might teach kindergartners and he throws them <laughs> yeah. around the people. He gets one that represents the sun and he throws it. He basically has, they pay all that money for a game of catch. And then, what does he say at the end? Shit just happens. <laughs> I mean, that being said, the, the guy he threw it to was actually uh, Liam Hemsworth, who he threw the hey, sun wow. at. Uh, interesting fact, knowing Mark, the film debut of Liam Hemsworth. Was it? Yeah. Of the Hemsworth oh, acting God, family. Yeah, oh, he was, of course. I remember he was quite striking, that guy. He's got a sort of like handsome, sort of Chad like character, wasn't he? <laughs> you know, yeah, but that was, was him. That was Liam Hemsworth. I mean, it was such like a one line bit part, just to get like, you know, your, your toe in the water of film yeah. acting. But I saw, I was reading in some preview on this and saw Liam Hemsworth and saw, well, he's caught the ball. He's like a striking, handsome man by, uh, by anyone's metric. And mm. I thought, oh, surely he's going to have, therefore, a bigger part to play in the film, like said, student and teacher kind of thing. No, he just finishes his lecture, watches his uh, lecturer yeah. have a midlife crisis in the middle of the lecture. <laughs> yeah. And we've all been Honestly. there. We've all been to lectures like that. Um, yeah, I guess. But, but he, you know, he's, he's not getting his pay bonus at the end of the, of the term, is he, Cage, for that? <laughs> but that <laughs> performance I mean? in the classroom, it was about five minutes, wasn't it? The whole thing. <laughs> yeah. The bell goes, he throws the ball to a, a quick game of catch, and then that's it. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's got the whole sort of randomness versus determinism. And oh, like, yeah, well, oh, yeah. What do you think? It's like, oh, it's all fucking shit, isn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> but this, I mean, I say this as someone who did a uh, since-cancelled uh, Bachelor of Arts degree in comedy writing and performance at Southampton Solent University. I've seen <laughs> lecturers break down so many times. <laughs> there was one lesson... Um, and I'll the lecturer, I'll because he's still quite influential in the comedy business. I'll he will remain nameless. Mm -hmm. But there was one lesson um, we're taking like a course in. Uh, it, it's not even important anymore because the course has been cancelled. But for a whole hour, uh, this was um, maybe on a Wednesday or a Thursday, like ten a.m., eleven a.m. He brought in his DVD box set of Lovejoy, put on an episode, made us watch it. And then the lecture was over. Oh. To this day. Yeah, I guess. I guess. <laughs> to this day, then, I don't know what the purpose of that lesson was. I, I'm not one to point fingers, actually, Daryl, to try and I'm not trying to infer anything, but I guess there, there maybe is supposed to be a difference between the calibre of uh, MIT and uh, Southampton Solent. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to sort of... Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't go to either. <laughs> Everyone shat on Solent, and rightfully so. But in the league table that no one paid attention to in terms of creative courses, it was one of the top, but that's not the one you pay attention to. Um, yeah, I actually, I could bet, I, I had to look around it. I got a really good vibe from it, to be fair. It was it was a decent uni. Um, it got better by the time I left because they'd built all extensions and stuff. But they had given honorary doctorates to both Danny Minogue and Craig David, so... <laughs> There's there's the caliber of doctorate 
<laughs> like, this is it. Too. You can. This is you could returning to the the previous idea of cage rage being your PhD thesis. This is it. Like, <laughs> go back. <laughs> You're an alumnus of the school. I am an alumnus. Take a... it with open arms. Sweet Dicky alumni. No, <laughs> sweet Dicky lum. <laughs> sweet Dicky lumness. <laughs> uh, sweet uh. Dicky lumness. PhD. <laughs> Now I've come into the stage to accept the honorary doctorate, Dickie London's PhD. <laughs> Tiny little square hat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, oh. yeah no, so, so um, obviously, I don't know how you want to proceed with it, but I suppose since we spoke a bit about the numbers, should we take it to the, to the, to the opening bit? Because I've, where the little where where obviously the numbers were first written down. Yeah, well, um, I said we get, we open in 1959, Lexington, Mass, Lexington, Massachusetts, and we get the character uh, Lucinda Embry, who it turns out her name is an anagram of badly numeric. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't know, um, she's hearing the whispers that we later find out are from the. Um, the uh, Spandau Ballet wannabes, the beautiful leather boys. Yeah. Um, come angels, come aliens. Come Greeks. We don't know what they yeah. are, really. Um, but she goes into this trance, just writes down this seizing, uh, seemingly like random series of numbers on this paper, uh, gets taken away by the teacher because they're supposed to be drawing pictures to put in a time capsule for 50 years later of how they think the world's going to be. And I'll tell um, you what, sorry, Daryl, I've just done that. Um, the it, the ridiculous thing about that is that um, the teacher says you need to draw what you imagine the world will look like in 50 years time and she says okay now pick up your pens and go and I had to like sort of pause and rewatch so I could time it and she actually gives them 13 seconds before saying right <laughs> pen now <laughs> I've just got my stationery all in order <laughs> and now that's it so no wonder that girl is a bit cheesed off that she's told to stop I mean she's barely you know she's not even touched the sides I mean, for 13 seconds, though, she got through about 2,000 numbers. What an indication of talent, really. I mean, wasted, yeah. if anything. Oh, uh, right. Then she's asked to, then she uh, runs off into the cupboard, scratching at the door with her bloody fingers to scratch the remaining numbers in there. Um, and then we sort of go forward to 2009. The capsule mm-hmm. is being unearthed. All the students of that day are given a letters from the students of 50 years ago caleb uh johnson gets given the letter with all the numbers um sort of and that little jerk home. kid like Haha, everybody else got pictures <laughs> <laughs> i made a note about that guy because like that yeah. kid and actually my exact note said that jerk kid. Oh, mate. well yeah because he is obviously i mean that's how he's listed in the credits i'm sure because <laughs> <laughs> obviously everyone's and i, I don't know I think if that was me, though, and I'm not sure what the age range would have been, I think they would have been made like t- around 10 or something, uh, 9, 10. But I think if I was given just a series of numbers, I would have been like, oh, this is weird. Like, <laughs> this is this obviously doesn't fulfill the criteria. There's something that's, there's something, yeah. there's something here, surely. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I got to pick it up a rocket ship. Yeah. I think he's, he, he, he peeks over his shoulder so quickly. I made a note of his exact quote. It was like, hey, what you get? boring and then he runs off yeah everybody else got pictures (laughs) (laughs) and then he runs off his cap the peak of his cap covering his face so we can't identify him for future roles 
he's he obviously doesn't have a happy home life mate <laughs> you know yeah. otherwise why would he have so much spite in him <laughs> so much well, malice when all the kids were singing this little light of mine he was definitely just open mouth miming oh yes yeah, sure that kid can't read the lyrics mate <laughs> hey, <laughs> lyrics boring yeah, yeah yeah everybody else got pictures <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, is that schmuck? Where is he? Get him on the podcast. Open up. A... <laughs> I want open, to face him right now. Open invitation yes. to that kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If that kid ever finds himself listening, which he might, because actually, if I was that kid and I found out there was a podcast dedicated to the film I was in, I potentially would. <laughs> I think obviously, you know, that this kid's like ten years older, so he's got to be in his twenties somewhere. If we ballpark, say like mid mid to early 20s yeah i can't guarantee that the first thing i wouldn't do would it be just to punch him right in the gut yeah like, well, everyone it, else yeah. got pictures <laughs> <laughs> yeah once we've yeah, yeah well, you do that and then i'll come down on top of him with like a flying elbow or something <laughs> i think yeah once he's in fact yeah, handle. i'm not this isn't just an open invitation to the podcast to that kid this is a challenge to a fight <laughs> give us you know you give us your series of numbers date time coordinates yeah that's it yeah i'll give you a picture because that's what you want isn't it (laughs) and then we'll see you there bro (laughs) this is what the podcast has become open 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 challenges to children to fight (laughs) no yeah exactly full on and caleb himself would get it because if we just return to the film um the first point you see Nicolas Cage, I noted, interesting shot, wasn't it? Because it tells you quite a lot about John Kessler, his character. Yeah. Because he's drinking, he's sort of slugging from the glass of wine whilst looking through a telescope and cooking burgers or hot dogs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And his son, Caleb, room, yeah. just jilts him at the barbecue. I felt a lot of yeah. pang of sorrow for Cage there. Yeah, like he's obviously he's gone through a loss. He's very understandably protective of his child has got this bubble around him doesn't really want him out of his sight um and then yeah i guess you can imagine he caleb his friends are doing stuff he wants to sort of spread his wings and then your dad's been sizzling those sweet dogs for yeah. uh you know a few hours got a telescope out it's a set ritual it's happening and suddenly you're vegetarian i at that point sleeves up oh yeah for <laughs> sure yeah, yeah, top, yeah. top button of the shirt and button. My chin's out. I'm coming for some fisticuffs. And, yeah, yeah. And I'm slugging that boy. I will for say, a second though, depiction of child abuse. <laughs> I just need to intercept and say, Cage Rage <laughs> does not advocate hitting children of any kind, <laughs> except for <laughs> that jerk in the first thing. <laughs> except for that fictional. It's so angry though, because obviously the um they they did that scene and the director for this, Alex Proyas who also helmed uh, The Crow and I, Robot. Mm-hmm. They did that scene, and Alex went, cut, it's in the bag, one take. <laughs> Get really? What the, what, the barbecue scene? I think, no, they, they, uh, everyone else got pictures like that oh, scene. Yeah. <laughs> they said, this one's, this one's in the bag. We got it. Oh, him. yeah, I mean, yeah, to be fair, that's definitely it's a one-take wonder shot, that. I mean, it's got to <laughs> talk. To be fair, it's taken up about 10 minutes. <laughs> of a two-hour film, that... Sort of fifteen second exchange goes a long way. <laughs> That's a rap on jerk kid. This little lad man. Everybody else got pictures. Is, 
Does anybody else got pictures? <laughs> That's like when it becomes a question because he realizes how alone he is and left behind. <laughs> Does anybody was... else get pictures? What if he was the only one who got a picture and everyone else got numbers as well? <laughs> Hey, so with the hot dogs, though, just to bring it to the hot dogs, I noticed that Cage says, Dad's, what does he describe it as? Dad's famous Sunday night hot dogs on the run, which is a, a weird, a weird what? thing that they have a title. And also, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by on the run? Where are they going? Yeah. Did he, did he cap, did, the only way it makes sense is if he, if he has his own hog farm. Oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And he, he punches those pigs just in the side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Goes down, yeah, yeah, takes the, sure. takes the gets... sweet meat. Yeah, it must be that. <laughs> that's, the, that's the only way it makes sense. But, um, I mean, also, they... Obviously, they, they um, go back to what you said about him drinking. They sort of tail-end it um, and at the start as well with him drinking to uh, Beethoven's seventh major symphony, second moving. Like, dun-dun-dun-dun. <laughs> yeah. Like, they have in, like, every news and screen wipe that Charlie Brooker does every year to sort of mm-hmm. uh, overarch the madness he's seen on screen. And he's just like, slugging it down. Hey, the guy's um, an alcoholic. He is definitely your kind of standard widower dad alcoholic. Like, he, he gets through so many whiskeys. Like, begins on the wine in that opening shot. But he drinks, like, for the next five nights, like, just he drinks probably a bottle of whiskey a night. Like, there's always just an overturned empty bottle yeah. next to his sleeping head. <laughs> <laughs> you know like oh, that uh, archetypal it was the only way it didn't go sort of full alcoholic redemption was him standing over a sink and pouring it down yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. to re- to redeem himself he um, actually ends up yeah do you remember the point where he overpours his glass and he's just got like a whole tumbler of whiskey just to the brim it's sloshing over because he 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 sloshes it over because he sees Caleb watching like a home video of his uh like mother tucking him in, then he starts shaking. It's like, right, I've got to have like a full glass of the, of the whisk yeah. right now. And then it, it seems that is like the very sudden catalyst that triggers him to look at the numbers because Caleb's brought him home. He's not supposed to. And he's like, oh, I got like a ring mark on the numbers. Yeah. And then he just, and then he just, apropos of nothing, decides to work them out. That's the thing, isn't it? It's like one man's descent into alcohol psychosis. Like, <laughs> That's how it seems because it's like he starts drinking and I don't know how many other classic breakthroughs have been made. Like five whiskeys in. I mean, many, probably many. That's a thing. I mean, I, I suppose that when he when he goes to his colleague uh, sort of like the next day and obviously there's going to still be some whiskey on his breath. And he's like, he's like, <laughs> yeah. he's like, look, I figured out the numbers. This one's 9-11. It's like, right, yeah. you're off your axis, man. <laughs> he keeps saying, like, I think he just... You're just off your axis. You just keep telling him, you're off your axis. You're yeah, off your just axis. off his axis. That must be kind of like, you know, MIT professor slang. <laughs> then, the, then the other MIT professor's like, everybody else got pictures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, sure. That is it. That is it. I mean, he, when he drinks the whiskey on night one, he turns on a documentary of note, Tigers Under Threat. which i've searched for it doesn't exist but for some reason in the film they put david attenborough's vocals over the top of it (laughs) and it's just titled tigers under threat which i thought was going to be it was going to be like a a clue some sort of foreshadowing of something to appear later on but no um i mean i'd watch that though tigers under threat (laughs) 
<laughs> Five whiskeys in. Whiskey in a jar. And he has yeah. that classic moment, doesn't he? Where he, like, he rips his whiteboard off the wall. Like, I have a whiteboard. And I've never felt the need to like <laughs> rip it. I've like never felt compelled to rip it off the wall just to put yeah. it on another wall. <laughs> that was unnecessarily violent. And I don't care how many how many whiskers in rips yeah. it off one drywall. Classic white man anger taking it out on the drywall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to cover up another fist hole in another yeah, drywall. Yeah. And then he um. And then he's, he's just having that sort of like a big galaxy brain moment where he's just working out all the numbers and he's figuring out that uh, the numbers relate to events. He figures out the first one is 9-11 and then um, later eventually figures out that the numbers he didn't circle were related to coordinates. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he starts to think as well that he's uh, he, he and his family are integrally related to the numbers because... He his wife was a victim of one of the sort of the, the numbers and he was at the location of uh, the big plane crash, like the first big set piece mm-hmm. in the film. But that sort of uh, the plane comes down, he's like overslept to go and get Caleb. Um, because he's been up all night, necking the whiskeys, desperately seeking out morbid news stories to substantiate <laughs> his claims. For all we know, he's in, he's in a whiskey coma and none of this yeah, happens. Yeah. He's, he's forgot school pickup the next day. His Rest son's to, thinks of whiskey. His son's rolled him into the recovery position on the living room floor <laughs> on those cold wooden boards. Um, I will say though about that uh, plane crash, which I thought, oh, that's quite quite an exciting scene that mm. happens. Sort of it comes out of nowhere. The plane comes down. He's asking, like, you know, what's all the holdup going on here? The police officer just runs, like, oh, oh. <laughs> the plane comes down. That was nominated. That plane scene at the um. Eighth Visual Effects Society Awards in the category of Best Single Visual Effect, um, but did, lost it was out. Uh, lost out to Avatar with uh, Natiri drinking. Oh. Um, so there was a scene of one of those blue fuckers <laughs> drinking that beat a plane crash. <laughs> <laughs> drinking? What? Just having a what? Sipping from a brook or like doing what? <laughs> I'm not sure what the exact scene was, um, but I do know that year at the Visual Effects Society Awards, between Avatar and Up, they swept the awards that year for uh, for films. Okay, so, that makes sense, I guess. To but even not the drinking segment. Yeah, I'd have to I'd have to Google and see if that comes up as a scene. Oh, I think it's uh, some one of those blue bastards drinking from a purple <laughs> leaf. Um, oh, there's it's very. Like a very almost um, sort of affecting scene, just when you Google image it, of just like a, an avatar with three fingers, their long fingered hands just cusping gently this purple leaf, and their head tilted back, mouth open, receiving okay. that liquid. Quite seductive. Have, quite, yeah, a very seductive it's sort of sex scene. Sex sells, doesn't it? Whereas Kate is playing for realness, you know. <laughs> so that, that 20 second scene beat out the plane crash in knowing for the visual effect award. Um, I also looked into other awards because a lot of times, and this is kind of the joy of looking into the behind the scenes of cage films. So many awards exist that you've never heard of. Mm -hmm. Um, Oftentimes awards for his more terrible films. There's an award up there with the golden raspberries called the golden stinkers, um, (laughs) which (laughs) there was, there was a, a few gone in 60 seconds was nominated for a few golden stinkers. 
I know that um, Angelina Jolie was nominated for worst hair at the Golden <laughs> Stinkers for. Um, See, that's just cruel, isn't it? <laughs> there was definitely an award made up for that year, but uh, I think it was the 2000 Golden Stinkers. Um, it always makes me laugh because I don't know if you know this film, but the award, and what an accolade to say for it in any conversation, the award that swept the Stinkers that year uh, was John Travolta's Battlefield Earth. <laughs> I've not actually, no, I've not, no, I've, I think I've seen promo for that and I can pretty much work it out based on that. But no, what it did incredibly well at the Stinkers. Swept the yeah, Stinkers. Swept uh, was Travolta so... there to collect Stinker, um, I, I, d- I doubt that he was. I, I think Travolta was. Is it, is it a trophy or does someone just spit at you? <laughs> you get on stage. <laughs> I like to imagine it's just like a, a shining round golden backside um, yeah. <laughs> that, that, you, that you just accept. Um, I need to see what a picture of the award actually is. Um, but there was. I've just, I've just gone onto the Wikipedia page. There was just, there was just a, a little section that said. Um, in 2006, uh, uh, the Stinkers refused to nominate Hotel Heiress Paris Hilton for a supporting role in the horror film House of Wax. Uh, said Lancaster of this, to get on the Stinkers ballot, you were judged on your performance, not your tabloid persona. Anyone that would put Paris Hilton on a list of the five worst supporting actresses in 2005 didn't see a lot of movies in 2005. I could list 12 actresses who gave worse supporting performances than Paris Hilton. Um, but oh, then the following year, they did nominate her for worst actress for her performance in the barely released National Lampoon's Pledge This. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so I suppose to be a truly terrible actor, you have to be around for quite a while, you know. The Stingers ran for quite a while there. They ran from 78 till 2006. Uh, 43 years of Stinkers. Until they um, until they ended in two thousand and seven, where no reason was given for the uh, the end of the stinkers. Well, they so. need to just like come back for a one-off stinker that just covers all of the years from then to now. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, if there's anything, um, I mean, I think the cruelest award, um, the lifetime non-achievement award, the Hall <laughs> of Shame in nineteen ninety seven. Now, the, the nominees were Mel Brooks, Whoopi Goldberg, and Burt Reynolds. The oh, winner, that seems unfounded, really. Uh, I mean, I don't know what else the criteria would have been in 97, but the winner of Lifetime Non-Achievement went to Chevy Chase. <laughs> <laughs> the year before, um, they, they used to have one-off special awards. The year before, in 1996, biggest acting stretch went to Ellen DeGeneres for playing a heterosexual woman. <laughs> <laughs> so then you just cross over into pure bigotry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, n- nothing nothing was uh, off limits for the, yeah. <laughs> for the stinkers. <laughs> um, Maybe that led to the demise of the stinkers. They just went underground and they just let it all out. There's a proper I mean, dirty network of <laughs> hateful bigots <laughs> dishing out awards. <laughs> Well, they they are led by a Los Angeles-based group of film buffs and film critics. Oh, so the most bitter of the LA Review circuit. Yeah, that's it. The uh, the failed directors. I mean, I found there was another award called uh, the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards that ran for uh, like eleven years or something, and it ended in two thousand and one. 
obviously the the threat of uh, terrorism at that point was so heightened that big events like that they just had to get cancelled out of like mm-hmm. safety concerns. But until that point, Nicolas Cage had won the most of blockbuster entertainment awards. Um, and what was the the general like uh, overview of a blockbuster entertainment award? It seemed to be they had like best actor actress categories for basically every genre of films. It was like best romance drama, best suspense, best oh, yeah, thriller, yeah. rom com. So, <laughs> you could there was there was no way you couldn't be um, you couldn't win something, mm. which also goes into this <laughs> next bit. This also won an award at the at the ASCAP Awards, which are the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers for top box office films. Although I looked into this, and this is basically just a participation award. What's well, so a knowing got this? Yeah, there was 23 other winners, so 24 oh. in total. Um, same category. Same category, 23, 24 in total. It seems to be if your film was number one at any point, you got given a participation <laughs> award. Um, I mean, other winners include... A 2009 hit film, Paul Blart, Mole Cop. (laughs) (laughs) He's in great company then, Cage, isn't he? (laughs) So for 2009, on one hand, you've got Paul Blart, Mole Cop. You've got Knowing. On the other hand, you had uh, Gran Torino. You had um, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Nice. Um, So esteemed company to be in at the ASCAP Awards. Rubbing shoulders with giants. Paul Blart, (laughs) Mole Cop. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Interestingly, it debuted at number one when it was released on March 20th, 2009. It beat out I Love You Man and Duplicity and knocked off Race to Witch Mountain for the number one spot. Um, it was and that knocked, was what, knowing? Uh, that was knowing, knocked off The Rock's Race to Witch Mountain right. and stayed, off, uh, stayed in number one for one whole week until it was subsequently knocked off the top spot by uh, Monsters vs. Aliens and The Haunting in Connecticut. Um, with its meager, with uh, knowing having its meager thirty three percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's really kind of just a uh, it's one week on, one week off shift pattern. Then <laughs> <laughs> come into the number one spot, and then before you know it, <laughs> this film was basically a temp agency filling a filling a, a oh, gap yeah, in the market yeah. until throw some phone monkey at the gag at the gig. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it did quite well in the box office though. Fifty million budget made two hundred fourteen point four million, um, nice. so didn't do, do too badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, bit of a hard time getting off the ground though. It went into turnaround, went through a number of directors before uh, Alex Proyas signed on. They were uh, they nearly had the director of Donnie Darko on board at one point. Um, until mm. they got old Alex, and it was he taken. would have been quite hot property, I think, at that point, wouldn't he? I think he would have um, would be interesting to see what he would have done with the film, but we uh, we got the capable hands of Alex Proyas, and we got the screenwriters uh, three people to, uh, tasked to bring this to life. We had a uh, Ryan Douglas Pearson, Juliet Snowden, both sort of novelists, and have chipped in some TV here and there. Uh, the one of most note, Styles White, who originally did a lot of SFX work, including Jurassic Parks. Two and three, Galaxy Quest, Small Soldiers, um, and he came on to sort of write this film as well. So, nice. maybe his expertise of uh, the Small Soldiers um, jerk <laughs> commandos to bring that plane to life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, and now, sort of here we are. But um, like I said, a very long-winded way of saying I enjoyed the plane <laughs> secrets. <laughs> yeah, um, <that> <laughs> 
<laughs> an exhaustive amount of information actually but i'm glad i experienced it you know i i do the digging so uh so you don't have to um <laughs> the plain scene though if we just like so to break it down for people who haven't seen the plain scene cage is like in a car in a traffic jam and he suddenly works out I, well actually just to take it back so obviously uh, earlier in the film his friend and colleague had been trying to set him up on a date obviously we know that cage is a widower and um his friend just wants to get him back on the scene and cage like sort of flirts with the idea and then he runs off to the tent of the ceremony where the time capsule is being unearthed and then what yeah. i thought was funny about this was um he's in the car there chatting away actually i think it's time maybe i can get back into dating and then just as he's about to sort of sign off on when it will happen he throws it down and starts looking at his gps going mental again thinking that he's worked out um, that yeah. a disaster event is about to happen and yeah. indeed he was correct so he yes if they finally figure out the missing numbers that they could place were coordinates he happens to be at the exact location of the plane crash <laughs> but then he he runs into the fuselage of the burning wreckage people in on fire yeah screaming one, at him screaming at them the one like uh, he he does try to help them to his credit afterwards, but when he runs in, there's a guy in flames screaming in agony that runs past him, and he tries to flag him down as if he's asking for direction. He goes, "Hi, hi!" Yeah, and then he seems <laughs> grieved as if he's being ignored as well. Like he's hard done by. It's like, "Hey, hey!" <laughs> so so angry at him, and then he just it's... proceeds to wrestle with various burn victims. <laughs> <laughs> he's like it's grabbing like... their bodies and dunking them in puddles. <laughs> <laughs> pulling them out of the wreckage <laughs> has, a, has a little uh, sort of CPR and then pushes the chest down yeah. tries to get the heartbeat rate in I mean there was nothing to suggest that the guy he pushed out the, pulled out of the fuselage was actually unconscious <laughs> he, yeah. was, he got his attention and then he just went straight in to staying alive on that chest there was that woman that was screaming like obviously in shock suffering vicious trauma oh yeah doesn't he just throw her off <laughs> they're grabbing each other by the arms just throws her off and then he's he's sort of told by the the uh, emergency services just to you know like wind your neck in and we've got yeah, it. i mean let's you know. be honest he fucked up there he did nothing did he? <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, he, he, ran, to... he sprinted into an emergency setting without any training or un- like plan <laughs> he fiddled like... around with a few people and then got wrestled off by emergency services it's like where are your detachable globe ball figurines now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, gonna, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Where's your determinism now, you snake? Yeah. Um, I think that that's that's sort of the trigger where he he, he sort of figures it out. Um, Caleb, at this point, afterwards, he's having visions of the world on fire. That mighty moose just like screaming in agony. Yeah. Um, and he's he's screaming. So they're both sort of learning in their own ways that shit is kicking off hitting the proverbial fan i liked the bit though where he um we're sort of skipping ahead of like diana and abby here but he goes home and he gets a gun and i kind of figured i don't know why he's got a gun because you can't shoot a disaster and stop yeah. it yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as if he was gonna shoot like the next plane and just like yeah, divert yeah. its course and it was gonna go back <laughs> up. just to shoot a meteor out of the sky you know <laughs> he, i think that was shooting. just really for him that was a confidence boost <laughs> that's what he was going for <laughs> like well we can't so we can't stop them but we can shoot them yes, out yeah, of the yeah. sky um but this is when he starts looking into uh the, the disasters a bit more he clues on to lucinda who was the girl at the start who'd um was hearing the whispers 
uh, finds the teacher, uh, but she's not much help because it's typically, oh, it's an old woman, therefore, of course, she has dementia. Yeah, um, true. But then also, like, it's... Ice it tea has, a thousand times. He has mental expectations for that woman as well. So, like, it's been 50 years since she would have ever seen this sheet of paper. And bear yeah. in mind, the sheet of paper contains... Uh, it's like an A4, double-sided, covered in a string of letters. And, uh, you know, th there must have been probably about maybe 300 sorry string of numbers there must have been probably about 300 do you reckon across both sides of paper and then he yeah, says to old woman is this what you saw and gives it to her <laughs> <laughs> she just takes a cursory glance and he's like oh yes i think so <laughs> i mean but of course it must have dementia we should have respect for that yeah obviously a, a, a woman who you know respectfully doesn't have a full mental capacities because you know 50 years have passed and he's He's expecting it to be like, oh yeah, this is what the numbers mean. The exact um, numbers, yeah. These are the ones. Yeah, I can prove that this is it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing is that he learns that Lucinda has since passed, uh, but she's survived by her daughter and granddaughter. So, uh, basically, stalks them to a museum under the false pretense. But how? And then just yeah. says like, right, this is why I'm here because of your grandmother but how do you approach anyone and not sound like a lunatic uh, yeah he's accosted this woman like you say he was a lure but <laughs> he, he pretended that he was a kind of like bashful like divorcee or like you know <laughs> he was trying to kind of like get on her level they was chatting her up he took her outside for a, a drink and then he just drops the bombshell <laughs> he's talking about her mother and like major disasters he chases her to a car and demands help <laughs> <You know? laughs> and this is this is basically what you, you see people do like the rom-coms when they basically weaponize their child as a flirting pawn yeah in their game it's like oh go and look at the dire wolves whilst i can speak to this yeah. woman <laughs> but his was quite forced as well talk about weaponizing it was like a claw hammer it was like a sl sledgehammer because <laughs> he's just like hey is that, is that is that your child and she's like why <laughs> yeah <laughs> no, that's that's my child <laughs> it's, it's it is so awkward there then he just has to then they talk like, oh, you know, what's you know, what's he deal? And he's like, you know, I'm I'm single. You know, had to couldn't keep his hands to himself, so I said he couldn't keep his hands to me, so I sent yeah. him out. You know, <laughs> opening up like fairly quickly. She feels as a rapport there, and is like, your grandmother's insane. I need to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, she's yeah. like, I am out of here right yeah. now. Um, but then and then he sort of he, he actually gets quite quite aggressive. I mean, I suppose characteristically he's intense from the start, but he starts shouting at points at. You know, he's, and yeah. then uh, like on the way back in the bit, moment directly after that scene, she's fled in the car. He's trying to uh, warn the authorities about like an upcoming disaster that the numbers <laughs> predict. So he calls up the payphone, he calls up the police on a payphone and really unconvincingly, as if it was obviously a prank call, says, this is not a prank call. <laughs> and then he hangs up <laughs> a payphone. <laughs> yeah. I I noticed that bit, and I think my and I and I get like I'm sure the FBI get crank calls and stuff, and there was a panicky part of his uh, like sort of brain just going like just get the point across, get the point across. Yeah. You haven't got that much time, but at the same time, I couldn't help but think if you are trying to avert a disaster that you know is going to happen, why did you not just stay on the line and speak to someone? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Why didn't you just go in person? I'd go. I'd try and go to the nearest station, and I, I would insist that I've got some like valuable info, instead of making it difficult for myself. But I think that's the problem with John Kessler throughout the whole film, Daryl. 
he just he's a martyr. He is a complete martyr. He doesn't want to accept <laughs> help. He doesn't go to NASA or like the CIA. He like runs no. around with like a woman and two kids, like the Scooby Gang, <laughs> trying to save the world. <laughs> he's just walking around. You know when they've got that like that sleazy sort of dumb like beat. It's like dun, 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 dun. yeah, yeah. As long as he's got his magnifying glass and like, like Zoinks, Caleb. But he, he, he could. I feel like he could have done more. But then he goes down to the subway. He's got his gun down there. Everyone was dressed so darkly as well. Everyone was dressed in like black and dark grey. There was. I don't know if that Mm. was intentional or if that's just how New York at rush hour works. If everyone's dressed in a very dark way, yeah. he sees him. He pursues a man who he thinks is going to be responsible for the uh, disaster. Turns out he's just running with some bootleg DVDs. That's it. Um, like Kate's coming across like the most dedicated HMV security guard there's ever been. <laughs> <laughs> Chasing the guy down, just running him down. Um, gets like the full force of the of the NYPD to stop this man at the end of the train. Yeah, um, and then a, for a twelve p bundle. <laughs> of, of Horton Here's a Who <laughs> Cat, the original <laughs> Talladega Nights a Ballad of uh, Ricky Bobby Paul Blart Mall Cop, mate, of course <laughs> Roses are red, violets are blue Paul yeah. Blart Mall Cop too um, Then just for it to sort of turn out that it's you know an oncoming train that derails and just takes out um, a plethora of New Yorkites uh, takes them out he does save a mother and child, the same one that he just screams at at the start, that you've got to get off the train. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but d- does manage to sort of save them. Um, then I think if you were the FBI at that point, you're like, there was one guy that said it definitely wasn't a prank call. If yeah. I was the FBI, I'd be looking for this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give me some information yeah, exactly. on this I mean, right now. He sounds like the perpetrator, to be honest, doesn't he? <laughs> really? <yeah. laughs> Um, um, and then, yeah, Cage, after the end of that horrendous train disaster, he just walks free, just like he did from the aeroplane with his blazer on, looking <laughs> perhaps a bit disgruntled at best, as if he'd missed the bus or something. But actually, it was like at the centre of <laughs> an enormous disaster. Um, a huge, huge conspiracy disaster. Yeah, but he just walks off, like, just a bit a bit grisly. <laughs> yeah, just a bit grizzled. Like he's, this, I think this is a, a point in Cage's career as well, when he's... Uh, his hair is becoming noticeably bad in films. <laughs> I think it, it's it kicked off, and he's done knowing at this point. He's got in his rearview mirror. He's got like uh, the Wicker Man sort of Ghost Rider as well. Mm. That's when his hair had started going on like a downward spiral. At the point when it's growing backwards in the yeah. the same way of someone we used to know from school, very much piglet Toryite. And I won't say his name, but he, you know the one, his hair, the only man I've ever known whose hair grows backwards. Yeah, yeah, no, I know, you know him, yeah. It's, it's, and it had the, the texture of a, um, what was I going to say? Oh, what What is the name of those cloths that you might use? Steel, the steel wool cloths? A Brillo That's pad. what I was, that yeah. was thinking of when I said it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's got, yeah, got the sort of Brillo pad textured hair. <laughs> and the pork sign and... features and the pink salmon skin <laughs> and the tubby little hooves. And actually, you know, uh, we should probably stop going into such specific territory. <laughs> yeah, and oh. he speaks with a, with a pronounced Scottish accent. 
That'll throw him off. Definitely, uh, definitely a, a big old prank, unlike Cage. Yeah. Um, but by this point, he's gotten Diana and Abby on side. Um, she has the back to like, I always thought my mother was crazy, but I knew she was telling the truth. And they go to her motorhome, as we were saying earlier. All the black pebbles are there. Um, yeah. They find yes, I mean, uh, the, the motor. Have we spoken about the pebbles actually since time of recording, since pressing record? Because I wonder if we haven't i'm not sure maybe we haven't actually but uh, th- this is something we were definitely saying off record yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a whole running thing throughout the film of uh black pebbles being discovered and these mysterious uh like the whisperer creatures people have we talked earlier giving black pebbles to people they give one to caleb they've the, lucinda's got a stockpile of them they're like gift shop pebbles like from from skegness seafront <laughs> in a tiny little plastic case we can just rattle them so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> little rude. souvenirs that you don't want from a relative you don't like. <laughs> uh, but we were trying to figure out, sort of, off before we recorded, if these pebbles were sort of like a token to say you've made it to the ship. Because it turns out only the people that can hear, like the whispers and the numbers, they're in tune with these higher beings. Only they can ascend to this uh, this new planet, this new planetoid that they have. Um, but the pebbles are just sort of loose currency. You have to be given one. You can't just pick one up like Cage does at the gas station at the end. Mm-hmm. They've got, they've very much got like a list of like a bouncer. Your name's not down. You're not coming in. Yeah. Um, I don't. That being said, they're mostly like, targeting the under tens as well. <laughs> yeah. Only. Ch- I mean, they've basically taken children to this new battle planet to say, and now we're going to watch you grow up and fucking repopulate. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Like, if you're Cage, you can't just take a pebble and then bum-rush your way onto the ship. You have yeah, to be... yeah. Although, yeah, not, that's not for lack of trying. <laughs> that's, that's it. So with the pebble thing, obviously, yeah, you know, you, you do need to have a pebble to sort of permit your entry. But at the same time, they kind of just dish them around everywhere. So, like, they, they keep stumbling across these pebbles, cropping up in all sorts of places. But it's kind of like a, a bit of a honey trap, because if you try and grab one, you know, you're not going to get anywhere with it, but um, they know you're interested. <laughs> Right, pebbles not down. You're not coming in. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the pep, yeah. I think the pebbles are just weird, kind of pied piper esque invites to children only. Only children can be saved. That seems to be the vibe. And then the brilliant that I think the tree of life at the end, all clad in white, because the, it's all Christian iconography and it's all pure. Yeah. Um, yeah, they but they are a kind of precursor. Well, if you can be a precursor to Adam and Eve, they 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 step into the Adam and Eve type like archetypes. These kids are skipping off together towards like a tree of life, and um, yeah, I mean it's one thing about the pebbles as well. Eventually, the pebbles turn into uh, rabbits, don't well they? They don't turn into rabbits, but they <laughs> they go from having the pebbles as their only little keepsake to when the kids are in the possession of the aliens, they suddenly show up these big white rabbits. Yeah, I, th- I think you train in your pebble for a rabbit. Your rabbit gives you entrance to, to uh, yeah, the, yeah, the exactly. new planet. I think it was maybe like just a joke from the aliens just to say, and now you're going to fuck like. Uh, yeah, that's why <laughs> I, you know I had had that thought as well. That's... I thought was it was a really clumsy symbol that had been like thrown in there by the filmmaker, like, you know, just in case anybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this subliminally hit us. <laughs> this is what I mean though. This is, this is what I was saying earlier. I really enjoyed like the first half of the film when they're working out all the disasters, but when it just focuses on the disasters and this is where the film itself was heavily criticized was it's, was it's ending. Um, that's where it kind of, 
I mean, I suppose it's a weird thing to say, right, Daryl? At what point did this ridiculous film really lose you? But then mm. um, I think the whole the alien stuff at the end, I can sort of get it maybe that the aliens are wiping out people and they're taking people. It's a very rapturesque kind of thing to happen. Um, but it just seemed like there was a lot left to be explained about why pebbles, why rabbits, why only children. Have adults done something that has made them uh, unqualifiable yes. for ascension? Um, there's a lot left to be desired. Absolutely. And like the, the children, obviously, they have the uh, cap- ca- um, capability to talk to the alien angels, but through um, like telepathy. So at the very end, when Cage is suddenly resigned to the fact that he's got to just not only give his son Caleb away to these ancient, uh, these angel alien type Spandau ballet creatures, whatever they are. Yeah. <laughs> 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 they, um, he also has to give away uh, the daughter of the woman he accosted in the museum, who he also inadvertently killed. <laughs> <laughs> so, and he makes this decision based purely on the word of the child, Caleb, who's had a telepathic conversation with an alien. <laughs> with <laughs> I've got to go on the ship now. And Cage, I suppose being quite an honourable man, really, but also a terrible dad at this point. <laughs> or a good dad. I mean, you know, let's break that down. Um. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's obviously hand in hand. Caleb wants him to come, but he's just like, uh, oh, yeah, by the way, the angel said that you're not allowed. He doesn't question it. He doesn't really fight that much for it. He kind of just accepts it. I suppose Which by. Is, you know, I'm, I'm now wondering. <laughs> he just wanted a holiday. <laughs> he just wanted time off to make his, uh, his hogs on the run. Yeah. Um, it makes me think at this point, he's, his little sort of astrophysicist mind has been blown wide open by. Um, by the, the the reveal that other life higher forms exist and then he just falls to his knees becomes hysterical on the black yep. pebble launch pad of the ground then just drives back to his family as beethoven plays again and the earth gets solar flared to absolute yeah. shit um cradles his dad who he always had a bit of a fractious relationship with his dad being very religious was he a pastor was he yeah, I think yeah because his um, Cage's character's sister sort of turns up, mm-hmm. kind of randomly, um, and then they have like a little argument thing. I'm not really sure what why, but he does say in a weird voice, "I am the son of a pastor." Um, oh yeah, yeah, I've got that down in note in capitals. <laughs> I'm the son of a pastor. Because <laughs> he. Uh, so I, th- I feel they were maybe very weakly trying to have some element of science versus religion in there. Which... Uh, yeah, and in the end, religion wins. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh... so, eat that, Dawkins. Exactly. He turns his back on like two decades of, uh, of, of work at MIT and like all of his education and like the beliefs that he has held up to that point. And then he just sort of kneels before God, gets into his daddy's arms and then the great release happens <laughs> the flames engulf the world just making me think of like the um ben wheatley field in england where at that point cage is just on his knees gun in his mouth just like open your mouth and let the devil in i mean yeah. that's that's all it was just yeah, <laughs> giving up to the devil <laughs> as the totally devil submitted. totally submitted He's but i have submitted. to say like i was thinking um myself like I, you got to applaud cage for actually committing like fully putting so much faith into like the little girl's predictions really before he even knew that they were predictions 
and just yeah. taking it all so seriously. Because if it had happened to me, I'd just suspect Darren Brown and move on. <laughs> 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 obviously a plea for ratings it's some channel four deal you know the numbers the stones i mean the scariest thing about 2020 for me was that was the the lack of darren brown no one had oh. tabs on him no oh, okay yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. he's gonna do a big review show isn't he soon <laughs> i think one of my favorite darren brown moments was when a lot of his like his big child four shows were basically he sets up the premise at the start. It's like this is what's going to happen by the end, and the whole hour is basically how he's worked towards that moment, mm-hmm. and then you get to the end where they do the thing. The favorite one for me was um, where he there was this casino special where he got this guy basically convinced him to bet every fucking thing that he owned on the, on oh, the yeah. roll of a roulette wheel, and the guy lost. And then, as the, and then, because the, I think they were doing it live, the episode ended as he just heard Darren Brown mumbling to this guy, "Okay, well, we're, we're going to help you get everything back." Okay, just um, okay, to stay calm. And then it just ended and faded to black, like a some mothers do. Have yeah, to be fair, similar thing. Because I remember that what the one that really sticks to me. I like a few of them. I like the one where they had to steal the money from that man who was transporting cash between banks in their security vehicle. But um, the one that really sticks to me is uh, when they had to push that person off off a roof. So essentially, yes. kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was kind of like luring them into becoming murderers, I guess. Quite a few <laughs> of them did it as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So pushing how far the human the human psyche yeah. can go. But if Darren Brown started, you know, planned it like a, a step-by-step plan over the course of a year of giving you... Um, a list full of numbers and then giving you the facilities to slowly work them out. Oh, and then mate, you're... this is the work of Darren Brown. I'm telling you, that's my reading of knowing. <laughs> this is Darren Brown 101 <laughs> in a nutshell. Um, but then it's how, how quickly you will sink to working out these numbers and then being like Cage when you will scream in a woman's face, the caves won't save us. Nothing yeah. can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I suppose... Darren Brown, in all of his wisdom, <laughs> would have actually found a way to fool the world into believing that a big solar flare, a super flare, was coming. That was the yeah. that was meant to be the the, the apocalyptic point. And then when yeah. Cage works that out in the film as well, he again he sort of refuses the assistance. So he like dismisses the help of his friend when he goes back to the office, <laughs> tells him about it in like the space of three sentences, and the guy's like, "We need to go to like some government department and so on." And then uh, Cage basically just tells him to like go home and spend time with his wife, and then walks out. <laughs> <laughs> so we we are two of the finest minds for this yeah. moment, and we've uh, you know everyone just get in your bunker. They've got the emergency broadcasts going off, saying get your get stock up on water and supplies. Mm-hmm. Everything's going into absolute pandemonium. Uh, there's just that guy in the gas station going like, "Oh God!" Oh, like, <laughs> yeah. They said this last time, and he never that little happened. Danny DeVito, shit guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the giant hoax. Everyone's got to calm down. Get your hands. It's up. like white 2 k Hey, you got to pay for that. There's literally like fires outside, like gunfire, gun sounds going off. <laughs> and he's, he's still concerned about the cost of his pasta. <laughs> he's been dying to bring up Y2K for nine years Yeah, yeah, yeah. we all know that Y2K wasn't like that mate <laughs> <laughs> it just ticked over and we got on with it someone just plugged in a computer and we were fine yeah, yeah, um, yeah. my, my favourite point um, at the whole gas station scene is when um, 
Obviously, Diana's driven off with the kids because Cage is desperately scratching off the door trying to find out the final coordinates of uh, sort of the final thing. Uh, Diana drives off with the kids and then the Whisperers take the children and then she's at the payphone and turns around and there's that sudden zoom on her face. Like, yeah. <laughs> which is like the only time they do it in the film and it was so jarring. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at that point, all she was doing was just being absolutely hysterical and crying. And like, as I was sort of, um, sort of writing in my notes here, the second I wrote, Diana is being fucking useless. She got ploughed by that truck <laughs> and died. <laughs> and I was like, did you have a moment of sort of John Kessler esque? So thinking that this was all designed for you. <laughs> like the course of the film of knowing. I was my seventh whiskey in, neat. And yeah, yeah. All, How all many whiteboards did you ripped off the wall? Two whiteboards in. Whiteboards at your feet. <laughs> Seven whiskeys down. Diana's dead. But um, by that point as well, when the children are given the cryptic explanation, um, they really started annoying me because it became apparent to me at that point because I was so focused on like Cage figuring it out and all the other disasters and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it, then I started noticing that the child actors for Caleb and Abby were so bad. Uh, a lot of the time, I don't really like child actors anyway no, because it's no. usually uh, stand straight, put your arms a little bit away from your hips like you're shrugging, but you lean a bit forward and go, what are we going to do? And that's and that's child acting one I one for me. But here, when they were just like fucking mumbling, going, "I, they've been protecting us and preparing the way." Uh, yeah, like, yeah. oh fuck off! Like you and that jerk kid with the pictures. He just like, wanted three to slap some elocution into them. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair though, like, they. Um, I always think it's something that I consistently say that American child actors are far superior, in my view, to the British child actors. That I don't think that is consistent with the adult actors i think some changes along the way maybe it's to do with the training but for some reason the child actor in a british voice pisses me off you know <laughs> it does because something about it sounds so like tame and like pedestrian sometimes the american ones they got a bit of attitude you know like, oh daddy i don't need you know but like the, uh, the british, <laughs> they're just enunciate all of their words too clearly what are we going to do daddy you know yeah that type of thing it, you're either sort of very much a cockney ragamuffin child or a very enunciated sort of middle class pronunciation of, a, of a child. Sylvia Young Theatre School. Uh, <laughs> yeah, where's yeah. where's the Litchfield and Canaxone Burntwood's Pauline yeah, yeah. Quirks where's Academy? The, the Prince of Wales Theatre, Youth Theatre, right? Yeah. <laughs> where's where's the um Jack and the Giant Beanstalk that we stage handed on in two thousand and seven, yeah, 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 two thousand six. Yeah. Oh God, yeah, that actually, yeah, that mate, that's um, that is, this is the homecoming, really, and it would it would have been almost a year to the to the day, almost. I remember, no, yeah. not a year to the day, almost uh, about yeah, yeah, eight years to the day. <laughs> I remember it was me, you, and two two like mutual friends of ours, and we were stage handing on it, having a great time. All of us, for some reason, just falling in love with one of the, the people who was in it, or vying for a fucking love. Didn't care for any of us. Then I got oh, yeah. whisked off to do spotlighting. Didn't yeah. get anywhere near the action. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah to... we were just up in the crow's nest, mate. A sort of blackened old crow's nest peering down. <laughs> <laughs> I, had to, I had to listen to these like old, jaded, brummy stagehands just talking like these these horrible things about like the the woman who played the fairy godmother. As in their old 50-plus-year-old voices, they said, and to this day, 15 years later, it haunts me. 
as I was just trying to like get in with them and just make the make the boys laugh and be one of the crew, they said, and I quote, as she came on stage, all the children were enraptured with her sort of like glamour and her glitz, and this is the fairy godmother, she's gonna save the day, and then um she's got this presence about her, and then these brummy guy goes, died within a nut's juff. And to that day it lives with me and haunts oh, me. God. <laughs> Oh, so you know what? Like that must—that might be the origin of of me, because I've used that term, like you know, ironically, and also unironically in the years. <laughs> but I, I couldn't really remember where it derived from. I thought it was from somebody else we know, a kind of patriarchal figure in Burntwood, <laughs> who. We, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I know exactly um, what you mean. But uh, no, no, I think maybe that was it. Yeah. God, a gnat's chuff as well. Oh, Has anyone actually? Who's done the science on that though? Do you know what I mean? I mean, who? Who can say? You have I to mean, put a gnat on a miniature torturing rack, stretch his little gnat's <laughs> legs out, and you have to find out the exact circumference of the chuff. <laughs> and then you'd have to somehow do a, a juxtaposition with hers. I mean, that, it's, a, it's quite a lengthy uh, procedure, really. <laughs> quite a lengthy process just to come to the conclusion that um, that actor at that moment was, in fact, tighter than the chuff of a gnat. So... Yeah, it's like those two old stagehands definitely had some experience, didn't they, with the chuff of a gnat? <laughs> <laughs> Just in, some in the of my happiest nights. <laughs> Yow, me, a bag of dust. Fucking <laughs> 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 and chuffing. But it's, uh, you know, this is it all, it all comes back to this, like uh, Diana said in the film, it all comes to October 19th, the big mm-hmm. date when it all ended in the end and then Cage gets fucking flared and terraformed. I did look into actually October 19th just to see if there was any wider significance of things that happened of that day as well. Um, In 2005, October 19th, Saddam Hussein went on trial in Baghdad for crimes against humanity. Um, A bomb explosion in 2012 killed eight people in Lebanon, uh, 105 injured in 2013 in a train crash in Buenos Aires. Oh, wow. Um, There was quite a lot of things to do with various wars in histories as well 1912 Italo-Turkish war Italy takes possession of what is now Libya from the Ottoman Empire um, so a See, lot of, a lot of stuff the thing is with that though like that's what made me question the um, the criteria for getting on the numbers list in the first place you know because she this little girl was meant to have been documenting every single the cage phrases it as major disaster but then some of them on there had like a not to sort of, not to to be quite cynical in this way, but some of them, the death count was low, you know, compared to the, <laughs> the 9-11, source. which obviously has captured our imaginations worldwide. Um, but yeah, so I, like, what is she, how is she discriminating who gets on the list and who doesn't? Because obviously at any given day, there's probably been a, multiple things you could classify as a disaster happening now, you know, at time yeah. of recording and at time of listening, listener. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if she, you know, if she continued to write that list, if things are a flawed in the narrative, perhaps limiting yourself to 2019. Um, no, yeah. But October 19th, the only other sort of nice thing I saw it was also the birthday of John Lithgow. So, oh, was it? Um, who's John? Wait, who's John Lithgow? Uh, third Rock from the Sun, like sort of oh. the, uh, the patriarchal older aliens yes, in Dex- yeah, series yeah. four of Dexter <laughs> as uh, the Trinity Killer. Um, yes. He's nice done quite thing. a few things. He sort of crops up as a supporting role in a few. He's got a very memorable face. 
is a he's he's one of those the warming American faces. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, so. Uh, shout out to John. Yeah, yeah, uh, John, yeah, yeah. John. If you Lithgow. ever want a fight, we know where we are. <laughs> and also, just to pick a name out of a hat of other notable October nineteenth birth- birthdays, uh, the Japanese footballer Takeshi Koshida. If you want some, you know where I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Evander Holyfield was born on the day as well. If you want some, where's he? Where's he? Oh, mate, I need to get on this actually. Uh, big, we... <laughs> big fan, Vander. He was born on that day as well. Uh, and Gillian Jacobs. Um, just to scan through, it doesn't seem like anyone of note has been born since 1999, though. I don't suppose they've had time to ripen and make the list. Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. We can maybe do them. a reunion episode at some point, 10 years' time. <laughs> Me, you, Evander Holyfield, John Lithgow, Takeshi yeah. Kashida, Gillian Jacobs. The kid with the, the cap. <laughs> <laughs> cap kid. If it turns out he was born on the 19th as well. Um, but yeah, uh, I think sort of coming towards the end. Obviously, as I mentioned a bit earlier, this film was under a lot of scientific controversy. Um, they said that uh, a solar flare, even the most powerful solar flare, couldn't wipe out cities as it does in the film. Very much a fantasized uh, mm. thing for the sake of the film. It seemed to confuse numerology with the ability of science to describe the word, um, the world mathematically. Um, <laughs> But my sort of favourite thing um, to sort of round off, when asked about his research for the role, um, Nicolas Cage said, I grew up with a professor, so that was all the research I ever needed. It is now <laughs> it is worth noting that his father, August Coppola, was a professor of comparative literature at Cal State Long Beach. Um, <laughs> it's not even remotely in the field. Yeah. So, See, that's clutching at straws. I'd have thought someone, a man with such uh, renowned method acting chops would have gone out there and really found, really found, you know, a, a mentor for the role. You would think so. And, and someone um, with with the ties and connections that the Coppola family has. Yeah. Um, but he's. this is what I say, he's very much a man who um, who does it his own what, way, goes out on his own. decision, yeah. It will stick um, to it. Could have very easily taken the Coppola name, rode the coattails of that, but chose the name Cage, did his mm-hmm. own thing, and uh, God bless him. It gives me it gives me a podcast to focus on. Still, <laughs> yeah, yeah. still He's making your films. On Detro, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> my my life's work is built up to this moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, what would you do if he came? If he came on the podcast, we obviously touched on that earlier. That would be an amazing moment. But what if he actually uh, said to you? I want you to stop making the podcast. <laughs> would you? Uh, would you stop? <laughs> this is ridiculous. This has to stop. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just like Daryl. <laughs> need you to stop the podcast. Your podcast is an affront to me. Um, <laughs> I think if if he and only he asked, then I would take it under heavy consideration. I would plead oh, okay. my case. That's an ambiguous answer, yeah. I plead my case to him and say it comes from a place of love and admiration, of course, because um, I am genuinely a fan, as I've said many a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, though, that being said, we are at a point now where, and I say this making him sound like Skynet, he is becoming more self aware. Yeah. Um, he is, I, th- I think he <laughs> is. Larry le- point. <laughs> <laughs> he is leaning a lot more 
into uh, sort of the internet and public perception of him and what he is. He is aware of how people view him. He's got that series on Netflix coming up about the history of swearing that he's presenting because yeah. he, he okay. knows that he's known for a good swear word here and there. He's got the film this year coming out, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, a very John Malkovich-esque oh, yeah. um, film where he's playing a lot of his older roles. Um Okay. He, he, oh, here's one then. I suppose. What if he? What if he gets in touch with you and he says like, "I wanted. You need to sign the rights over to me. I'm going to be the new host. We're going to re-record all of your bits <laughs> from the previous episodes with me in it. Oh, <laughs> and you're going to go underground, and you're going to have. <laughs> you won't. You'll, you'll never be heard from again. <laughs> if you ever rear your head on this earth again, I personally <laughs> slit your throat. I mean, that would be the most... Hon- it's like Sepulchre. That's the honourable way for me to go out. Just yeah, yeah. blade, knife goes in, go- comes out. Exactly. Um, if he could buy me out, then that would be absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, but then <laughs> I'd just have to launch into Plan B and do this Willem Dafoe podcast called Getting Dafoe You. Nice. And just jump yeah. ship. <laughs> That's the only way it would go out for me. Um, either Cage buys careful. me out. Soon you'd have a whole network of Hollywood <laughs> A-listers after you. <laughs> Cage, Defoe, um, whoever else wants a fucking bit of it. Who else is in that that category? Actually, so the, the the Everest um... of like cult, but still a list credibility, like a sort of. That's it. I mean, I think Willem Defoe for me, he goes up there because um, I think he's someone who's. Not always in the public eye like Cage. He's had a plethora of roles. Um, he's taken many forms. Um, but I think he he, he get, goes a bit more, not underground, because he still does a lot of like big films. like The Lighthouse that came out not too long yeah, ago. I yeah, loved yeah. The Lighthouse. That was fantastic. He played um, Van Gogh as well, didn't he? Do like a sort of... Uh... I think he's played Van Gogh. I'm sure he's yeah. played Jesus as well. Um there's a, a film that he's in called Shadow of the Vampire that Nicolas Cage produced, which is <laughs> one that's very easy to miss, which is actually really good. Um, but he he's done like a lot of a, such a wide range of films, touching so many genres, and done made like a lot of acting choices like Cage as well. And I don't think a lot of people, enough people, are talking about um, Defoe in the same sort of breath um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. as that as well. Um, I know Dan Harmon and Kevin Smith, uh, the writers, directors, they rate Cage as one of like the best actors, their favourite actors as well. Oh, nice. Um, but I'm trying to think who else is up there who's doing like the crazy things like that. Um, I think I think Elijah Wood does a lot of out there stuff that goes under the radar. But Elijah Wood's a big fan of Cage. He's got um, Spectre Vision productions that he does as well. What about Shia LaBeouf? Shia LaBeouf could well be up there. Um, I know it's recently come out of time of recording that he's been like, <laughs> he's an abuser oh, yeah. uh, as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he's he's yeah. solid. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's sort of after hours version. <laughs> he's after hours. Sometimes I think maybe Jake Gyllenhaal because he's done a lot of stuff up there as well. Yeah, he's made. Um, he has made some bold choices and he's had some like quite memorable body transformations as well. Which was yeah. always a good indication of, you know, so I think it would be, he's very much a committed act. So I think this, it could well change. It could well change if you ask me again later on. But mm-hmm. I think for now, the four for me, um, Cage, Defoe, Wood, 
Gyllenhaal. I think that's where I'd, where I'd lay I doth my cap for now. Nice. Um, but yeah, I think that, I don't know if you would disagree if you would go if you go differently. No, I think uh, for the tone of the podcast as well, I would say all of those actors really do work, and they're at the right kind of level where they are. They do seem at times, or particularly in the in the case of Cage, you know, like kind of ubiquitous. Or, um, you know, like a lot of people are aware of, of the work that they have done, at least the biggest projects, but they're still at a level where there's so much to know about them. <laughs> so you could still yeah. be kind of educating people in the way that you do with the cage. But no, it's good, man. Exciting times. Exciting times. Lots to come. Still more to learn and uh, navigate <laughs> through this process. Obviously, the, the dream for me at the end is that uh, Cage Senpai just acknowledges me, whether it's him asking me to stop or yeah, just saying yeah, hello yeah, to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. To know that I breathe the same air and locks that same gaze um, and that we can maybe touch Hog one day. Oh, yeah, it's, what, yeah, it's, what, yeah. it's what keeps me kicking. You know, it's what keeps How me do we, kicking. Yeah, we need to find a way to get him to hear the podcast. I, I, I hope that in some circle, because with the awareness that he's got at the moment, that he maybe has some very basic knowledge without listening to any or being with an yeah, yeah, name yeah. drop any that he knows we're here um, yes yeah, that's <laughs> it. Yeah. we just need his... to reach him you just need to reach him without you know breaching any legal restrictions and as long as you can do that mate <laughs> no promises well away <laughs> <laughs> no promises at all yeah. um but as, as as we uh as we as we wrap up and come to the end this episode of Cage Rage and Nicholas Cage podcast. Um, I'd throw the question to you. You know, what were your Jerry Springer's final thoughts on knowing? And do you think it's a film um, worth knowing? Worth <laughs> knowing. Yeah. yeah. No, you know, I do. I actually do. Like, I, I um, see. I'm a, a fan of um, Ancient Aliens documentary series uh, where they really have uh, flogged a dead horse for three seasons, and it's great. <laughs> <laughs> and um i think this could be comparable to that the overarching theme of um i suppose like an alien race seeding all of the planets throughout the universe but then with the kind of that being built into ritual and like numerology and religion on our planet as well like that that to me it kind of reminded me a lot of ancient aliens and it got me exciting and i think there is you know cage does a good performance in the sense that you you do feel for his character there are those idiosyncrasies that make it quite funny as well and um yeah you know i actually was pleasantly surprised like i said to you earlier i thought i was going to come into this and just find a kind of like treasure trove of well like bits to take the piss out of but yeah. actually you know it was i think it was good i would recommend you get out and get to know knowing um <laughs> yeah i <laughs> everybody else got pictures um yeah i would i would definitely agree i was i went i tried to keep an open mind for every nicholas cage film and try to learn little about it until i actually watch it and then do the research for this one um i was expecting not to like it i was expecting just to throw it on the trash heap come in just ready to sort of uh, find all the hilarities and irregularities and nonsense with it but I found myself, um, and again, for, I'd say maybe the first three quarters, maybe the film, mm. actually quite engrossed in it, quite enjoying it. Um, it. It exceeded my expectations. 
I thought Nicolas Cage, as we said, gave a solid performance. Um, This was another film where there were many times where it could easily have have, uh, tilted him into like full cage mode, but we got um, a a more sort of restrained. Sometimes I think he looked a bit disinterested, but um, I enjoyed the film. I think I wouldn't say no to watching it again. Mm -hmm. Um, At the time of recording, it is currently available on Netflix for you to watch as well. Um, and this is something I always forget to do this. I started out giving Cage Films Cage ratings of bronze, silver, and gold. No lower than nice. bronze. I always forget to do it now. Um, but I think <laughs> I would... Ending aside, I think that we can sort of tear the ending a new one yeah. and um, how it kind of throws away all the mythology at the start just to focus on disaster and aliens at the end. Kind of um, very much... Um, a deus ex sort of machina, just like, oh yeah, we're aliens, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um feels like a bit of an ending out of nowhere um but i would arguably give this a silver cage i enjoyed it i actually really enjoyed it yeah i, came I would away agree with that a bit you know a bit of a sour taste in the mouth from the ending but i'd recommend it and i think it's worth watching yeah for sure so, where would you so. say it stands on the continuum of um cage films and films which cage is in this for me is a film that cage is in um i think you obviously got a few I think when is you're it a fil- spectrum though, are there like is he is he somewhere in between in this film? Um, it's kind of a case by case basis. I think at one point I'm just gonna have to make a left to right end to end spectrum of the cages of the cage films to just the film that he was yeah, in. Yeah, you need a bell curve. Where is and where he's seated in between? Um, I think with films that Cage is in, when he does when he does a scream or a shout like this one, the Cage won't save us, nothing can. It depends. Did it come out of nowhere, or was at that point in the film was it earned? Was it warranted to shout? <laughs> and I think it, I I would argue that it was. So that's what keeps it in um, a film that Cage was in for me. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. True. True. Although there are, I'm the son of a pastor. <laughs> that you know although that, that is still warranted but i don't know it, it took me by surprise it took me by surprise that one got the needle flicking <laughs> sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. back and forth <laughs> like that <laughs> and the guy it got the needle scratching away a little bit um but yeah it's i'd, I'd recommend this one i think it's decent i think it, there is enjoyment to be found just don't worry about the ending too much just kind of You've got to kind of let it happen. Like at that point, yeah, the world—the world's been destroyed. Why not have aliens at the end of it by this point? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's where I stand on this one. It gets a silver cage. One day I'm going to have to retrospectively go back and just rank the films, all the films that I've missed because there've been <laughs> so many of them. I started out so nobly and I lost my way. Um, but the numbers—they've shown me. They've shown me the light <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. again. You've been brought back onto the righteous path. <laughs> But as we as we wrap up here, uh, I say to you, Troy, thank you for joining me. This has been uh, a splendid, um, a splendid look into a decent film. If people want to find you on social media, should they wish, where can they? Well, should they wish, they can find me on Instagram at Troy Hewitt. Um, and they could find me on Twitter. I'm not, I'm not. I'm trying to be more active, actually. A bit of a New Year's resolution, so you, you got that to look forward to. Um, at Mr. <laughs> underscore <laughs> Troy Hewitt um, because I had to do a name change for for just boring reasons, uh, which now sound quite suspicious, actually. <laughs> what was left available was Mr. Troy Hewitt, which is a bit oh, hack, but whatever. And the so underscore, underscore as well. Troy Hewitt. And then on Instagram, Troy.Hewitt, and you can 
see a little link to a YouTube thing that I sometimes do stuff with as well. So how about that? <laughs> how about it? Well, I like the sound of it. Nice Troy, one. once again, thank you for joining me. It's been a goddamn pleasure. Thank you, Daryl. Um, it's been wonderful. <laughs> I'll treasure it. <laughs> This wraps up this episode of Cage Rage and Nicholas Cage Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you have been, uh, we will see you in the next one. But until then, keep on, keep on caging. It's all you have to do. Take care. Bye-bye.